Uh, we've been talking about the doctrine of election, and I, th this has got to be kind of wild for all of you. Uh, you know, if I'm not here, then you've got something else going on, and then I come back, and it's kind of picking stuff up all over the place, but it keeps us, keeps us young, something like that. So we've been talking about the doctrine of election, and uh, the last time uh, we had just uh, begun the section being sure of one's election, and we looked at a number of uh, passages, and I'm not going to go back over those, but uh, uh, from 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And uh, if, how many of you were in the first service? All right, a number of you. You, you will uh, undoubtedly recall that the will of God is to forgive your sins. And so that is God's will regarding all people. That is to have their sin forgiven so that they will be with Him in eternity. So to be sure of that is what this section is about. So a, a couple of uh, quotes from the confessions. Uh, on the other hand, it is correct to say that in conversion, through the attraction of the Holy Spirit, notice who's doing the work, God the Holy Spirit, God changes stubborn and unwilling people into willing people, and that after conversion, in the daily exercise of repentance, the reborn will of man is not idle, but cooperates in all the works which the Holy Spirit performs through us. So your, your will is completely non-cooperative before the Holy Spirit converts you, and then after that He does also convert your will, but obviously sin still resides in us, and so you are not perfect. You are not getting more perfect every day. Uh, you know, you're not getting better every day. If you do, you're going to be very disappointed. Because, uh, as Luther says, we daily sin much, and that is around our necks until the very end. Second quote here, it is taught among us that those who sin after baptism receive forgiveness of sin whenever they come to repentance, and absolution should not be denied them by the church. Properly speaking, true repentance is nothing else than to have contrition and sorrow or terror on account of sin, and yet at the same time to believe the gospel and absolution, namely, that sin has been forgiven and grace has been obtained through Christ. And this faith will comfort the heart and again set it at rest. Amendment of life and the forsaking of sin would then follow, for these must be the fruits of repentance, as John says, bear fruits that befit, or bear fruit that befits repentance. So, uh, there, were, there was a time in the early church when there were persecutions and there were people who fell away. And then, uh, after the persecution, they came back to the church. They were called the lopsy, those who had lapsed. And uh, they, they had quite a, quite a debate about those. They said, well, do we, do we forgive these people? 
and uh, th then you had to talk about repentance and uh, the quality of the repentance, and uh, we're not going to get into all of that to say, well, did you, do you really mean it now? Uh, I suppose we can only take people at their word unless they continue to show otherwise by their, by their actions afterwards. But that's what this is uh, referring to partly, and it, is, it refers to us too, because obviously uh, we have sinned after baptism, and so we come again and again for the forgiveness of sins. And that really is why anyone comes to the divine service. There is really no other chief reason. You know, we have this, this phrase, go to church. I don't like that phrase. Uh, because the word church is used in about five different things. They say, well, go to church. And? There's always that and. And what? And there are those who say, well, you go to church to praise God. Well, that, that is true, but that is not the main focus. The praise comes after the main focus. So that you will notice that after we receive the body and blood of Christ in the divine service, there is praise. Uh, we praise God for His forgiveness. We praise Him for His Word, which is His Word of forgiveness. So it's always centered in the forgiveness of sins. So a better term is to use uh, the term divine service, and that we have in our hymnals. We've had it now for two hymnals, uh, LW, the blue one, and then LSB. And that's the translation of the German, uh, Gottesdienst, God's service. And it's not our service of God, it is God's service of us. It is how God serves us and uh, preserves us in the true faith. So uh, maybe that might be a little something you can remember rather than saying going to church. To saying I'm going to the church to receive forgiveness of sins or I'm going to the church for a meeting. But going to church, church is kind of indefinite. Another one of my pet peeves. Uh, one more before I leave it. I'm probably getting in trouble for this. We have the habit in, in the Missouri Synod of saying, uh, well, I'm going to catechism. I say, oh, really? That's interesting. Catechism is a book. If you say, I'm going to be instructed, that is catechesis. That's the process of learning. Uh, so, uh, you know, or I'm going to confirmation. Really, that's really a long service. That's probably the longest service I've ever seen because it lasts for a couple of years. Uh, you have the right of confirmation, but when, when your children or whatever go to catechesis, they are not going to confirmation. You could say confirmation instruction, instruction to get you confirmed, but that's not really the point either. Uh, we, we just have a lot of sloppiness in our language that um, if you stop to think about it, <clears throat> doesn't make a lot of sense when you, when you listen to it carefully. Uh, Anyway, that's pet peeve number two for the morning. I'm done. <laughs> Unless any of you have any that you want to jump in. <laughs> okay, so we are talking here about uh, continual repentance and forgiveness so that these do not end. Third quote. 
According to Christ's teaching, they are to desist from sin, repent, believe His promise, and trust in Him completely and entirely. And since we are unable to do this by our own powers, the Holy Spirit wills to work such repentance and faith in us through the Word and the sacraments, and in order that we may see it through and abide and persevere in it, we should implore God to give us His grace, of which He has assured us in holy baptism, and no doubt that according to His promise He will give it to us. We have His word. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That's Luke 11, 11 through 13. So, that's telling us that God does not make mistakes. You, perhaps, parents, at some point, made a mistake in giving a certain gift to your child, where you say, I wish I'd never given that to her or him, and you say, that was not a wise thing. God never makes those mistakes, and he says, if you are, if you are a human father, if your son asks for a fish, are you going to give him a serpent, a poisonous snake instead? What kind of God would you have if he gave you things that were bad for you? But from our perspective, oftentimes, we are, we are quite unable to judge what is good for us and what is bad for us. Um, we think we know what's good for us, as does any child, you know, who wants something and begs you incessantly for it. And you say, but that wouldn't be good for you. Oh, I'll be, I'll be careful with this. I'll, I'll you know, I'll ma-. they make all kinds of promises that they can't keep and you know it. Or if he asks for an egg, give him a scorpion. Yes. So if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the Holy Spirit is the most important thing here because the Holy, not the Holy Spirit just all by himself. You know, you hear that from your, your Pentecostal friends. You know, having the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit's work is to bring Christ to us. As those of you in the first service heard, the forgiveness of sins is in the third article of the Creed, not the second. You'd think it would be in the second, but it's not. So the Holy Spirit takes what belongs to Christ and He applies it to you. The Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with His gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. Luther, third article, explanation. Okay. This is to be a comforting doctrine, uh, not something that is to distress us, and I think this is where some people get off of the rails because they start to worry about things that they shouldn't. Christians are not to try to peek into the eternal election of God for some kind of secret knowledge, but we are to be engaged in living the Christian life. So you just live the Christian life. You live out your Christian vocation, 
Luther said it best, I think. He said, we should concern ourselves with this revealed will of God, follow it, and be diligent about it because the Holy Spirit gives grace, power, and ability through the Word by which He has called us. We should not explore the abyss of the hidden foreknowledge of God, even as Christ answered the question, Lord, will those who are saved be few, by saying, strive to enter by the narrow door. And then Luther goes on, he says, uh, follow the order in the epistle to the Romans. Concern yourself first with Christ and his gospel, so that you learn to know your sins and his grace. Then after, or then take up the warfare against sin, as Paul teaches from the first to the eighth chapter. Afterward, when in the eighth chapter you are tested under the cross and in tribulation, the ninth, tenth, and eleventh chapters will show you how comforting God's foreknowledge is. So we are not to look into, as Luther calls it, the, uh, the, the abyss of the hidden foreknowledge of God. For that is something that God isn't going to share with us. Just as when Moses asked God to show him his glory, God says, no, you don't get to see it. Because, as we know from the scriptures, no one can see God and live. And so all Moses gets is the backside. And that's really what we have, other than the revelation which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There we do see God, but we see the God-man, and Jesus is the God-man. He is our Savior, and He is the one that we see, and so we see what God's will for us is when we look at Christ and not look at some Holy Spirit this and Holy Spirit that stuff, trying to, uh, well... Maybe you, maybe uh, many of you heard this uh, uh, flap about the vice president and Joy Behar, who said, you know, because he said that God speaks to him, and she said that's the definition of mental illness. Uh, yes, God, God does speak to all of us, and where does He speak to us? In His Word and in His sacraments, that's where He speaks to us. That's where He tells us what His will is, not some kind of secret message. Uh, but uh, that that was kind of a setup, I think, um, in order to uh, denigrate Christians. And who would have thought, those of you who are old enough, 40 years ago, whether we'd e even ever be having this discussion. I don't think any of us thought we'd, we'd be where we are, where any kind of confession of the Christian faith makes you mentally unfit. Um, any, anybody want to jump in on this? I'm just, this is a monologue here. I haven't given you an opportunity to ask questions. Going, going, gone. Okay, so 
it does the following things then. First, it proves that we are justified and saved without our works or merits, but solely for, by grace for Christ's sake. You're going to hear that in today's epistle reading again. Uh, it is by grace for Christ's sake, not because we've done anything, not even the smallest thing. It is completely, totally, 100% the work of God the Holy Spirit. Second, it gives the comfort that God was so deeply concerned about every individual Christian's conversion, righteousness, and salvation that he held counsel and ordained it before the world began. Um, God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So God determined in the councils of eternity, to save you. And so it has happened that you have come to holy baptism. You have become God's child. You are washed in the blood of Christ. And I don't know if you've ever thought about the circumstances of your life to say, well, what if I hadn't been born into the family in which I was born? And maybe that isn't always A guarantee, say, oh, I was born into the right family because some of you come into, into the church by a different way. Under certain circumstances, you say, if these things hadn't happened, I wouldn't have been in that place at that time and I wouldn't have heard the gospel. You know, it has happened so many times. You hear the stories of people who just happened to be, say, in the right place at the right time and they heard about Christ. That wasn't an accident. God caused these things to be. You say in his, in his foreknowledge, he knew that these would happen. But he had already chosen you before these things happened. So what Luther is telling us is don't try to look into all these hidden things. But sometimes looking, back, looking backward, you can see them. You know, maybe it happened to be the, the, uh, the person you met and married. That person might have been the link. It's happened. <laughs> Probably more times, than, more times than we know, but it, it's true. So how did these, you know, God works in mysterious ways. Mysterious in the sense of, <clears throat> excuse me, hiddenness. Hiddenness. So when we talk about the mysteries of God particularly the sacraments, these reveal the hiddenness of God because um, um, in, in the um, Luther's great baptismal hymn, all that, the, all that the world sees is water as we pour it. It doesn't see what's really happening, that it is the application of Christ's redemption to the sinner. The same with the Lord's Supper. People see bread and wine, but what's really hidden? The body and blood of Christ. There's a hiddenness there. I, I, you know, we have also said that about the church. The true church is hidden. Uh, I know that uh, our forefathers in the Missouri Synod, particularly uh, Walther, use the term invisible. 
the invisible church and the visible church. And I said, invisible. And what he meant was you can't really see it, but the confessions say you can find it. <laughs> I said, all right, now explain this one. You can find it. Why? By finding the marks of the church. The true gospel and the sacraments rightly administered. There it is. No, I think what the better term here is hidden. The true church is hidden. It is hidden under a lot of things. It is hidden under persecution and ineptitude and all of those sorts of things. But hidden in there is the true church. Just as Christ's body and blood are hidden in the bread and wine, forgiveness of sins is hidden in holy baptism, in the water of holy baptism. Forgiveness of sins is hidden in the weak person of the pastor who speaks the forgiveness of sins to you. Uh, all of that is a hiddenness that can't really be comprehended by reason. And that, of course, the world sees. It says, this is unreasonable. You people must be crazy. Yes, Chuck. Yeah, he's saying if you couldn't hear him that it's hidden in the lives of people and sometimes we get glimpses of it. Um, I mentioned in the sermon the, uh, a lot of the Nazis, not a lot, but a number of the Nazis who were tried at Nuremberg and they were, during their childhood they had been catechized, a number of them as Lutherans, and yet they engaged in horrible sins, and they, they came to repent. Had you heard this? Had Pastor Feeney told you this story before? Yeah, Chaplain Garrick is the man. And uh, we'd say, you know, the world, I think society would say, these people cannot be forgiven because they don't deserve it. Uh, they can't be forgiven. So, and, and we might agree that such people can't, but you take the thief on the cross, he had nothing whatsoever to offer. He had no chance to do good works because he was just hanging there. And he, he was reviling Christ at the beginning. And this amazing conversion happens so that Jesus says to him, Today, you shall be with me in paradise. You don't get paradise unless your sins are forgiven. But I suppose we'd have to say he's kind of the first fruits of things, isn't he? <laughs> A very bad person. And that, those were the people that Jesus hung out with, right? The tax collectors and other sinners. Oh, I'll tell you a story. Um, some years ago we had a, a funeral at our congregation for one of our elderly members and uh, in the sermon I had mentioned as I always do well uh, Adelaide was a sinner 
And after the service, two of her grandsons came up to me, and they were very angry with me. And uh, the one grandson, uh, well, I should say his father was Adelaide's son. He had married a Jewish lady, and he was raised uh, in Judaism. And he was greatly offended. He said, how dare you call my mother a sinner? He was ready to hit me. And the other grandson, who I think was nothing, uh, he was standing there next to him ready to hit me too. How dare you say my grandmother was a sinner? I said, well, she said it every Sunday in the divine service. Uh, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities. I said, I, I don't expect you to understand this. <laughs> Which probably added a little more fuel to the fire. <laughs> but, you know, it was like... He's thinking in the category of the Pharisees, the sinners who are not worthy of forgiveness or heaven. Only the good people get heaven. Surprise. There are no good people. Anybody think of a Bible passage? There is no one who does good, no not even one. There is only one who is good. So, uh, yeah, good people get heaven, but there aren't any of them. Not according to that definition. So that your, your righteousness is always an alien righteousness. Alien means it's outside of you, from a different place. It doesn't come from within you. So, you know, we have, that, we have that curious phrase that we like. You know, if you, if you watch baseball or sports, team sports, and a guy fumbles the ball on the goal line, and the other team gets it, and they, you know, march down the field and get a touchdown, and then they come back, and this guy somehow makes a touch, touchdown, and then, then the announcer says, well, he atoned for his mistake. He's balanced it out. You know, so we use that term atone in that way, and it's really not correct. It's not just to balance it, because you still have, you're still not there. There's still no good, you, you know, even if you could atone, but you can't atone. You and I cannot atone. And you would think that uh, anybody that reads the Old Testament would have gotten that when you see that the constant sacrificing of animals and other things all the time. In, in, the, uh, in the office of Vespers, uh, in the second part we get to the prayers, let, and it is intoned, let my prayers rise before you as incense. And the, lift, and the congregation responds, on the lifting up of my hands as the daily sacrifice. So what were these sacrifices all about? These are sacrifices that have to do with sin. So God says, okay, because you have sinned, you're going to kill the, the firstborn of your sheep or whatever. You're going to offer that animal on the altar. Not that the animal atone for the sins, but as a reminder that there is one who is coming who will atone. And that is Christ. So they, they, this was an economic thing. They say, this, but this is my best sheep. Well, then we find out in the... In the uh, 
in the prophets that uh, the people of Israel began, many of them began sacrificing the crippled and other sheep because, well, you know, it's just going to get burned up anyway, so, (laughs) you know, it's good enough. And yet God said, no, I want the best. And the, the firstborn son was also consecrated to the Lord. The first fruits of your crops went to the Lord. And you say, well, why? Is God just such a demanding person that He needs these? No, God never needed them, but they are to teach the people, you're a sinner and something needs to happen. So every one of these sacrifices then is a reminder of, of one's sin. So that uh, in Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, uh, they made themselves what to wear? Adam and Eve. Somebody said it. You be bold. Come on, sin boldly here if you know. Fig leaves. But then God makes them a garment. And what does He make the garment from? Animal skins. See already the effects of sin. Animals now die because of man's sin. So, but that is the reminder. See, you sin. So every time you sacrifice, you know, especially a Passover, the Passover lamb, it wasn't just a meal, but it was to remind them you were slaves. This is all about, and that's a picture of forgiveness here. Uh, this costs something. And so when we, uh, we think of the sacrifices, and there are also the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, which your offerings are. You know, your offerings don't buy you heaven. If they did, some of you aren't going to get in. <laughs> I'm kidding with that. I'm not, I have no idea what you do. <clears throat> but your sacrifices, your offerings are the thanksgiving for what God in Christ has done for you. You know, some people have worried that every time, every time the government messes around with taxes, they're going to take away the charitable deduction. And that question floated around here just recently with the new um, tax reform that we had. Well, what would happen to charities if... The deduction is taken away. What will happen to churches if that, well, we're going to have to cut our budget in half because people will just stop giving if they can't get credit from the government. And I really don't think that would happen in our church. It may happen in other charities, but uh, I think in our churches, I don't think so. I think most of you uh, realize that what you contribute of your time and your money and your abilities that these are all things that you do out of thanksgiving to God, not because the government's going to let you keep some more dollars in your pocket. I mean, I'm not saying that it isn't nice to have that on your 1040, but you'd say, okay, that's the way it is. You know, and up until the time that we had income tax in this country, which was... 
and somebody may have to correct me, I think it's somewhere in the beginning of the 20th century when we got income taxes. Before that, there was no income tax, so whatever the churches got was really a free will offering, wasn't it? There wasn't any lever. Okay, I don't know how I got over there. <laughs> uh, oh, it was, it was Chuck. Chuck led me over there with a <laughs> question about sometimes we do see God working in your lives. Any other questions at this point? Well, let's move on. Um, <clears throat> so because God works through His means or His tools, that is, word and sacrament, He has also ordained that you were born to the parents you were, that you lived where you did, that you perhaps met the spouse you would marry. I've said all these things already. So that you would hear his gospel, receive holy baptism, holy absolution, and holy communion, being kept in the faith through these means until your salvation has been completed. Nothing in your life happened by accident. This doctrine teaches that. Uh, sometimes we see, I think, uh, what you said, sometimes we can see this. How many of you uh, read the book or saw the movie Broken, the story of Louis Zamperini? Only a few of you? Yeah, uh, for those of you who didn't, it's a very worthwhile story. And his name came up again the other day because Billy Graham died. And uh, Louis uh, was converted after attending one of these Billy Graham rallies. Uh, Louis was a, a very gifted runner, and things went wrong in his life, and he ended up uh, joining the Army. It was still the Army and the Air Force together, and he became a, uh, was he the pilot on a B-24, got shot down over the Pacific, and or he and, and the rest of the crew that survived were alive longer than anybody has ever been afloat in the Pacific before. And they saw a boat on the horizon, were rescued. It was a Japanese. Took him to a prisoner of war camp, and, and he spent the rest of the war being bounced around in prisoner of war camps. Should not have survived. And he comes out, and his life is a mess. Everything is going wrong, and till finally, that moment comes when he comes to faith in Christ. And he looks back at all of that. He forgave his captors, even though he met the one captor, this officer called the bird, they called him the bird, and he was extremely cruel. And even afterward, this guy would not... There were, he was completely unforgiving and everything and just, I, I do believe that man probably went to hell. But Louis was uh, forgiven and he looked, he looked back at his whole life and he said he now sees the hand of God moving through all of this. Brought him to that point. Sometimes you do see it. I mean, many of us, we say, you know, you're, you're, 
sometimes your, your neo-evangelical friends will say, when did, you, when did you become a Christian? At baptism. Oh, you didn't have a grand moment where you made a decision? No, God had already decided that. That's what the doctrine of election says. So when you have these people say that, well, when you decide, no, God decided it. He decided in eternity that I would be His. And these are the circumstances when my parents brought me to holy baptism. You see, that was God doing it. So there is great comfort in that to know that God has chosen you. So all of those circumstances work, uh, work together for this. That's what the doctrine teaches. Uh, third point, in times of affliction, trial, illness, and whatever testing may come your way, you have the comfort that you will be saved <clears throat> because God has determined and decreed that He will assist you in all your necessities, give you patience, comfort, create hope, and bring everything to this end. Romans 8, 28 to 30. Let's look at that again. I think many of you know these words by heart anyway, but it's good to read them. Romans 8, 28 to 30. And it's all in here. I'll start at, <coughs> excuse me, verse 26. <clears throat> Likewise, the Spirit, <clears throat> boy, I need more of that. <clears throat> Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Boy, there's a, there's a revealing statement. <laughs> we don't always know what we should pray for as we should. But... The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What a great promise that is. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Wow. So you see, God is at work on all of those things. He's going to make sure that you get there. Now, this is not to say that it is... Uh, going to be an easy road because he chose you quite the opposite it is your life is going to be filled with trouble the apostles say that jesus says that in the world you will have tribulation but we're not going to escape it and the older we get the more troubles we have you know, if you're not a senior citizen yet, uh, you may have troubles. That's not to say you can't have them while you're young. But uh, the psalmist tells us, you know, the troubles increase as we get older. Uh, none of us is getting out of this life alive. <laughs> as I told a, a, our, our family doctor many years ago that we had, 
when he began practicing, I said, just remember this. I said, if you live long enough, you're going to lose 100% of your patients. <laughs> Doctors don't do very well with failure. They don't. Well, pastors don't either. And maybe you don't either in your life, but failures. Uh, my, our older daughter called me last evening. Our, her, she has three daughters, two of whom are twins, and one of the twins is a, is a gymnast. And she's my granddaughter, but she is really quite good. <laughs> now, her coach says that. She, she's, she's kind of a natural athlete, and everybody wants, where did she get that? And I said, right here. <laughs> But uh, she just got bumped up to this gold division, and she had her first gold meet, and she was utterly discouraged afterwards because she didn't win any medals. And our daughter said, well, you haven't done some of those things before. This is the first time you've done them. She thinks she should do them perfectly the first time. I said, she's got a lot to learn. She's going she's to need a lot of failures in life to teach her. But, you know, I think sometimes, maybe you have children like this, maybe you're one of these people, if things came easily to you, failure is hard to accept. You know, if you have been knocked down a few times, you don't know what it's like to have to get back up. And so, for some of us, God knocks us down more times than He knocks other people down. But I've learned more from my failures than I ever did from my successes. I think you might admit that too. I hope you have. Okay, so anyway, in all of this, God is going to keep you. And we're, our time is, up, is about up, isn't it? Or no, we go to 1030. I, I don't get this right. I guess, it's I guess it's because back in Emmanuel, it's 1030 is start time. And I look at the clock and say, oh, yeah. And our pastor does not know how to read the clock. <laughs> He took down the clock that we had in the, where the Bible study is. He took the clock down. So now he doesn't see the clock. People keep coming in and they're looking at their watches and people are sitting there, finish their coffee, straightening up. You know, he doesn't get the hint. You know, you're, you're seven minutes past. Okay. All right. Number four. This doctrine gives glorious testimony that the church of Christ shall exist and remain against all the gates of hell, and it teaches us what the true church is so that we are not offended by the outward prestige of the false church. Romans 9, 8 and following. Um, the church will be here in spite of her weakness, and we have that in the hymns too. Uh, the church is one foundation in there. Uh, talks about the saints, their watcher keeping, the cry goes up, how long? But soon the voice of weeping shall be, I think I've got that right. The voice of weeping shall be the morn of song, isn't it? Romans 9, 8. This means... That it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. 
For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Uh, this gets into the whole matter of what happened to the Jews, and that we'll, we'll talk about that. But uh, in spite of what seems to happen, uh, we should not be offended by the fact that uh, God chooses the outwardly weak things. And when the church has been persecuted, the church has grown the most. You know, we had this things still around, I guess, called the church growth movement, where you do all these right things and people are going to flock to your doors and come in. Well, you may get people to flock to your doors and come in, but it doesn't mean that it's the church. It just means you're better at manipulating people. And during that time, there were some who said, well, if we really want to have church growth, uh, we should pray for another persecution. Because when there's a persecution, the church has grown. The blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. The more the Romans tried to stamp it out, the faster and wider it grew because people fastened on to the Word of God and God caused it to grow. Uh, the church has never done very well in prosperity. You know, we, we pray for prosperous times so that we can have things and fix the roof, uh, <laughs> all these things. But uh, my father was a pastor during the Depression, and he said, you know, during the Depression, we never lacked for anything in the church. It was after the Depression was over, always asking for money. It seems counterintuitive, but people in those days then looked at what was valuable, what was really important, because they didn't have Everything else, what was really important was the gospel, and therefore they supported it. So there was always, I would say, bread on the table for the church. Uh, doesn't mean they weren't hard times by any means, but uh, people sacrificed. We don't really know much sacrifice in our day. Most of us don't know what sacrifice is. I mean, you say, well, you're sacrificing for your kids, but somehow... They all seem to have electronic devices galore, which may be a curse and not a blessing, by the way. I think we've learned that within the past couple of weeks, that uh, what has happened is that so many of our children have become totally alienated because of social media. Uh, a sad story in our community, a uh, young man was arrested Thursday high school student because he posted something on, on Snapchat holding a gun and saying good luck on your finals. His mother is a teacher, not at that school. She was a classmate of our older daughter. This boy's grandfather was a member of our congregation. He died last year and I said Here, here's one of these things where God took Charlie home to heaven before he ever saw this. This 
I think if you're, if you're a grandfather, this would, this would absolutely crush you. I mean, if you're a parent, it would too. But I think, you know, grandparents, we have a different relationship with those children. And, uh, and, and I don't think he's a bad kid. I think he's just, he's hanging out with the wrong people. He thinks this is something to do. And there are no consequences to your actions. And there are three other ones just in the surrounding counties that have done this too. All of this because it's been so played up. Maybe we need to... I shouldn't say it. I won't say it. (laughs) What we should do. We should confiscate all of the electronic devices. Okay, so even the gates of hell shall not prevail against Christ's church, and we should not be offended by her outward poverty before the world. And if the world speaks ill of the church. Um, you know, the apostles, and they get, they get run out of towns, they get beaten up, they get stoned, and they say, we were joyed, <laughs> we were full of joy to be counted worthy to suffer for Christ. How many of us would say that? How many of us could say that? It's pretty tough. Okay, one more point here. Yet, a couple of points. This doctrine gives glorious... I already said that one, excuse me. It does contain strong admonitions and warnings, however. Let's look at... at look at look. Yeah, let's look at Luke 7.30. And this is uh, when, uh, starting at 29... When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. I should have used that passage in the sermon. That would have been, that would have been a good one to use in the sermon today. They rejected the purpose of God by not being baptized. What was John's baptism? It was a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So, rejecting the forgiveness of sins is not a good sign. Still in Luke, Luke 8, 8. And this is after the parable of the sower. And he said these things, as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then 18. The lamp under the jar, take care then how you hear. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. And then Matthew twenty two fourteen. 14. <clears throat> and <clears throat> this is after the parable of the wedding feast. Uh, Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot. This is a guy without the wedding garment, that is, without faith. Cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The call goes out to everybody. God will have all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, but not all will obey the call, not all will come to faith. That is in the mystery of God, why some and not others. 
And that's what uh, Paul describes in uh, Romans uh, 8 through 10, 11. So on the heels of these warnings, we must not pry or try to pry into the mystery of God, but we are to cling solely to the revealed word of God, nothing else. Now Romans eleven thirty three. <clears throat> And this is after, uh, in 9 and 10 and 11, <clears throat> Paul is dealing with, you know, what about Israel? Israel's unbelief in chapter 9. Chapter 10, the message of salvation to all. In other words, the message of salvation goes out to all people. And yet... Uh, There is still the matter of the Jews, of Israel. At uh, 1021, but of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And what does it mean, then, chapter 11, he gets into this, says, uh, around 15, <coughs> 14, 13, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And then he talks about uh, leaven or, or yeast, leavening the whole lump. And uh, at the end of this, uh, 25 and following, the mystery of Israel's salvation, uh, he says some rather remarkable things, like at 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their father, forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, and goes on. And at 33, Paul's conclusion, after 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have, had, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. In other words, we are not going to know the mind of God here and how, why he works the way he does. It is a mystery. It is hidden from us. And yet we are to rejoice in it because we are to cling only to God's word and trust him. You know, God is not my co-pilot. People like to say, so what does that mean? It means you're flying the plane. God's just sitting there watching. Okay, don't do that. No, <laughs> if anything, you have to say, God is my pilot, and I'm just the passenger in the back, uh, if you want to use that. Uh, so um, we didn't get to the thing about those who are lost, and we can do that the next time. Um, So, uh, unless you have any quick questions, we'll close. Any quick questions? All right, none. Let's close then. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Good, you.